Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. We're speaking on June 1st, one day after Statistics Canada released the Q1 GDP numbers and four days after the Alberta election. We'll discuss both and what they may mean for government policy in Canada's economy. We'll wrap up with an interesting story out of California, where State Farm Insurance, America's biggest car and house insurer, is pulling out of new home insurance policies due to growing concerns about wildfires and what it signifies about the economic consequences of climate-driven events. Amanda, we have a lot to cover. Thanks for joining me once again. Great to be with you. Let's start with the GDP numbers this week. We learned that after a slight contraction in the last quarter of 2022, the Canadian economy grew on an annualized basis by 3.1% in the first quarter of this year. That's almost a full percentage point more than the Bank of Canada had projected. We'll talk about what this means for monetary policy in a minute. I just want to get your general reaction to the numbers. What do you think? Are we going to avoid a recession or is it too early to say? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that might depend on the Bank of Canada and what they do next. Um, I think my first reaction was similar to most first reactions to this, which was that's a big number. And, you know, as we know, for Canada, three plus is above trend, long term trend. We don't grow that much unless something has happened. Um, so it was a surprising number. When we dug in a little bit, I guess the most surprising thing to me is that households are the driver. Um, and and I, I did wonder, and I'm going to dig in a little bit with uh, with some business leaders. It feels a little bit like, you know, of the two pistons, only the household is pushing because we do know businesses' confidence is down. Um, spending is certainly down on the business side. So they are responding to higher rates. They are doing what the Bank of Canada wants to, and, and will create a slowdown. How long can households stay confident in the face of that, I guess, is, would be the question I would ask. And to the point on what the bank does, we'll find out next week. If the bank says this is too hot uh, and we're going to raise again, then we could have a recession. Uh, if the bank says, no, this is doing what we thought it would do. It's just happening slightly slower than we thought it would happen. We're going to keep waiting and seeing. Uh, I think we could avoid a, at least a bad recession. Yeah, there's so much there to unpack, isn't isn't there, Amanda? As you say, a lot of smart observers are speculating that the result will push the bank to move from its position of kind of holding on interest rate hikes to possibly announcing a new one on June 7th when we're expecting the next communications from Tiff Macklem. But let's just stay on the subject of household spending because it, it is fascinating, as you say. There's been some commentary that it may be that households are pushing up expenditures in anticipation of a possible recession. There's also the kind of ongoing role of stimulus, which wrapped up in and about Q4 of last year, but but possibly still influencing 
household spending. What do you make of this? Are, are interest rates hikes just taking longer than expected to affect household consumption? Or is there something else going on? I mean, I, you know, the thing that jumped out at me uh, really was the decline in the savings rate um, back down to, I, I want to say, south of three, it's 2.5, maybe 2.8 um, from above 5%. And so uh, that to me, that speaks of to kind of the point you're making. There was so much um, pandemic buildup of savings, um, uh, the reduction of costs for so many households. We may still be seeing a bit of the benefit of that, actually. People have a cushion and the cushion's running out fast. Um, and so now we're kind of maybe getting back to the savings rate that we know um, and hate. And, uh, you know, maybe now we get more normal. So, I mean, I, to me, I, I don't, well, what do you think? I mean, I think if I had to add it all up, I would say if I were advising the Bank of Canada, thank goodness I'm not, it's a hard job, um, I would wait and see. I don't think you move on this data. I think there's enough here to say, you know, if you look at the three months of growth, the strongest was January, uh, and then you had two tepid months doing exactly what you think, which is kind of flatlining, basically. So um, I would wait to see what happened <laughs> in the following months, right? Um, and we already have early data for that that suggests the slowdown is real. Yeah, I think that's right. There's certainly that line of argument, especially, Amanda, since uh, the consumer spending that seems to have been behind the unexpected growth rate in, in Q1 may be a result of supply and demand just coming into something more resembling equilibrium. You know, I note, for instance, that car sales were up, and it may just be that that these were cars that consumers have been waiting on for months because of the supply crunch that that marked the 2022 economy. And so it may be a, a timing issue as much as a reflection of consumer confidence. The monetary hawks, though, I think would counter that when you combine Q1 growth with some of the underlying inflation numbers that we've seen just in the past several weeks, that there may be a need for Tiff Macklem to move from the kind of tough rhetoric that we've seen from him in the past couple of weeks, uh, past couple of months, rather, with more action. So yeah, I would I would add another element to this, which is uh, if we had a housing market correction, you could blink and miss it. Uh, and what we're seeing is um, some you know panic induced buying now of people saying, "Wow, like we missed our moment." You know, it's that psychology of so. To me, uh, not that of course the Bank of Canada is addressing the housing market directly, but the last thing we need are more people getting into mortgages at inc still incredibly elevated home prices uh, with high interest rates. We already faced the great reset problem for the next few years of people hitting the reality of banks that are going to raise their mortgage prices. And so, I, I mean, maybe if you're a really cautious central bank, you want to say people need to be aware that rates are going to be stay up. They're not going down anytime soon. Do not get a mortgage you can't afford. I don't know. I don't know if they think that way, but I that would be why I might long for um, a rate hike just to cool things down a little bit because it's still bonkers. Wow. ton of insight there, man. I'm sure you've seen some of the analysis that I've seen in the past several days that as current mortgage holders renegotiate, you know, in the next few years, a significant share of them are not going to be able to manage the carrying costs without something giving, including, for instance, longer amortization periods. So I, I think you're right. I think in a way, notwithstanding the impact of the rate hikes uh, on households, I don't want to diminish them, especially for low-income households. In some ways, it hasn't fully manifested itself because we saw such a significant spike in, in home purchases in and around 2000. And so the shoe may not drop until 2024, 2025, but economic theory would tell us um, that it's going to drop. Yeah. 
You mean 2020 uh, big spike in prices? Absolutely. I think that's right. Um, there's a, there is kind of a kind we've the banks are warning about it. The Bank of Canada is aware of it. There's this kind of coming wall at us. Is it orderly? Is it not orderly? The biggest issue, of course, we have is the banks don't want to take your house back. Um, the, right. They, nobody wants to repossess. So you'll see some forced sales, perhaps uh, getting out in front of that problem. But yeah, there may be more renegotiations for people um, than so maybe you look at your bank stocks if you're worried about that. That's that'll be the kind of next issue that they'll have to grapple with. And let's turn to Alberta, where we had a highly competitive two party race. The outcome returns the United Conservative Party and Premier Daniel Smith back to office. Uh, What do you think the major consequences will be for public policy and the premier work with Ottawa on natural resources and the environment? Or is this headed towards something of a conflict? I mean, we already, of course, have seen this stage set for conflict. Um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario. uh, We've already seen premiers willing to invoke uh, a constitutional clause that should not be invoked in some people's view, uh, except very rarely. Um, Now, I'm I'm generally of the view that rhetoric pre-campaign and during campaign um, can and will change once in government. Um, And that I should I should stress is a very optimistic view in the sense that I believe governing is hard. People take it seriously. They don't do it to be, um, you know, uh, polarizing or. Uh, you know, or to minimize issues. So I think once you actually wear the mantle of power, you get more sensible. I, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I, it's my hope. Uh, so I would say um, probably some of the trends we've seen continue and that there will be increasing kind of legal, perhaps, conflict. Uh, but, you know, you could equally argue the, the other side, Sean, that maybe Ottawa needs some pushback. We don't, you know, we, for all our talk, for instance, of developing critical minerals industries in this country, uh, we have a, a permitting process and a regulatory process that isn't on our side. It won't get us where we need to go in, t- in terms of getting um, the, the materials we need for green technology. So uh, you could argue the other side, which is maybe we need more pushback from premiers. And this is one that will at least have the mandate to do it. Yeah, I don't want to sound <laughs> too naive here, but one wonders if the UCP's election mandate, which I must admit, Amanda, is more significant than I would have predicted, just given the kind of economic, political, economic and political turmoil in the province over the past few years. One wonders if that causes Ottawa to sort of rethink not necessarily its policies, but how it chooses to interact with the provincial government and the province more broadly, you know, here we have a mandate for a premier and a party that, you know, ostensibly empowers it to represent and, and advance the interests of the province vis-a-vis a national government that at times has been perceived as indifferent to or even hostile to Alberta interests. And so I, I, I wonder, actually, if kind of counterintuitively, if we don't see more peace between Ottawa and Alberta than we've seen in in recent years. The one major caveat I would just put on the table, though, something that I've written about at the Hub, and viewers and listeners should stay tuned, we have a really detailed and analytical long-form piece coming next week from Christopher Reagan and Paul Rochon and Mark Jacquard, you know, three leading thinkers when it comes to economics and the environment, on Ottawa's plans for an admission cap on the oil and gas sector, something we talked a little about last time we, we, we spoke. And, you know, that is the idea that Rather than having a, a kind of neutral economy-wide climate policy in the form of, say, carbon taxes, Ottawa seems to be moving in the direction of a plus-plus, a carbon tax plus a sectoral cap. 
for emissions on, on oil and gas. That, it seems to me, represents the kind of biggest threat to federal provincial relations, because depending on how that cap is structured, it may, in effect, serve as a de facto production cap. So that's something I think um, listeners and viewers will want to watch for. Can't wait for that. And following as it does on the heels of that um, Parliamentary Bureau officer, uh, Budget Officer report um, on kind of the clean fuel uh, targets and how that disproportionately can hurt Alberta. It singled out, you know, energy heavy provinces, but Alberta in particular, and whether that is worth the ultimate return, whether that cost is worth it. I think you're right. I mean, there on the, there's certainly a lot setting up for conflict. I hope you're right and and not um, also overly optimistic that it actually creates a dynamic where there's more uh, willingness or ability to kind of come to terms. It actually, I'd be curious to know, this is a, probably a conversation for some, you know you to have with somebody else on another day, but w- how much it changes the dynamics of the next federal race um, and, and, you know, how what Albertans and other Canadians think about the relationship between premiers and the federal government, whether that changes who they perceive should be in that role or not. Um, and I, that you, I think it creates a really interesting dynamic. This may well have been a kind of an anti-Trudeau vote um, in Alberta, not that that's surprising, but what, what, how does that set Trudeau up for the next election, I think is an interesting question. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I would just say before we move on to a really fascinating topic of State Farm pulling out of home insurance in California, that I also think a, a kind of interesting political economy dynamic here in the Alberta election, Amanda, is may presage kind of longer term changes in the state of Alberta politics. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Alberta was essentially a one-party state. I think in the 2008 provincial election, the Progressive Conservative Party under then-Premier Estelmec won something like 90% of the seats. In this election, the New Democrats won 44% of the popular vote. And that, of course, is after forming government in, in 2015. And they're drawing on their support from the parts of the province that are the fastest growing. And so in the U.S., there's a lot of talk, as you know, about the shift from red states to blue states or blue states to red states or what are sometimes called purple states. One wonders if, you know, not the next election, that's for sure, and maybe not even the one after that or the one after that, but that if the long-term trend here is that Alberta becomes more of a a purple province uh, than a blue province, and that would have various consequences, but one may be that it has put sort of downward pressure on the polarization that we've seen in Canadian politics and between Ottawa and the provinces. And, you know, that may be a good thing. Yeah, unless, and I, I know we got to move on, but unless, of course, it also cr- increases the polarization that already exists between city and uh, and non-city. I mean, we the, the kind of urban, non-urban splits in this country, um, to your point, Alberta ha- hadn't been as kind of victim of that as other provinces. Ontario has long been that way. And we should note, actually, on the GDP file again, cities may be in recession. I'm sure you saw that data this week, that there there may also be a bit of a split here where 
um, there were economically, you start to see divergences. Um, and then there was great stuff this week in the hub from Trevor Toom on the generational uh, polarization when it comes to debt um, and who's in trouble with, with debt. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, polarization may be with us. I I, I hope we get purple. I, I'm worried that it'll just look like red, red versus blue. <laughs> well, let's uh, wrap up with a story that you flagged for me. State Farm, America's biggest car and house insurer, is essentially pulling out of new home insurance policies in California. What do you think is going on here and, and what are its broader implications? So I'm fascinated by this and I think it's it's maybe the most important business story I've seen in a long time. Um, and the reason is State Farm is not the first. AIG is already out. Uh, and what they're saying is they won't take new applicants. But when you talk to an insurance industry official, they'll agree that means they won't renew either. Uh, they can't actually terminate your policy. But once your policy's up, uh, they don't have to renew it and they won't. Um, they've done it in Florida. And some Canadians are familiar with this. There are places in Canada you can't get flood insurance, even though you need it because you know your home is, is likely to flood. Insurance companies have the ability to say no to business if the, the risk return isn't there, right? And the thing that's happening here is the, uh, the levers of getting insurance uh, of the reason and mitigating against it are no longer in the hands of homeowners. So if you are in most places and you want flood insurance, you can get cheaper flood insurance if you put a sump pump in your basement, if you uh, you know, fill in cracks. There's a bunch of things that the insurance company will give you a list. Do these things, your rates will drop. Same with driving, right? This is how it's supposed to work. The problem here is with climate change, insurance companies backstop their own risk in the global reinsurance market. And the global reinsurers are saying, mm, there's too much risk here. We can't do the math and there's nowhere for us to go. And so with climate, with extreme weather from climate, we're running out of ways to mitigate the risk. It's too big. It's too broad. It's too unpredictable. And I, the thing that's so interesting here is, so you're a homeowner in California. There's nothing you can, you can't say to State Farm, I, you know, I fireproofed my house. If there's a wildfire that comes through, there's very little you can do. The, the folks that need to mitigate that risk and, and fix this are governments, Is right? It's an international answer. It's climate change. It's a huge problem. So I think we're in this weird, scary place because living without insurance is a dark age. That's that sets us back. Really, I was looking into like thousands of years since we've been practicing this um, this kind of offsetting of risk. And so we do. This should be a real wake up call. Some Canadians have already had it. It's scary, um, but I think we're all going to get there, and we should pay attention and start asking what do we need to do to get around this. Yes, yeah, such fascinating insights, Amanda. There's a tendency in our public policy discourse to focus on climate mitigation. You know, that is to that is to say, trying to reduce emissions in the name of maintaining temperature growth at a rate that is conducive to human life and and nature and all the rest. But climate adaptation or some of these secondary consequences of climate change have yet to sort of fully manifest themselves in the public policy discussion. At least at a national level, as you say, there are certain places where these costs and consequences are manifesting themselves faster than elsewhere. We were talking before we started our conversation today, and there are already some U.S. states, for instance, that have to come in and effectively backstop private insurance because the fact that they're pulling out of those markets or or charging costs that are are just so prohibitive for for homeowners and. Yeah, one wonders if that's um, if that's a reality that we'll see in Canada sooner than later. What do you think? 
There's a big push by our insurance industry for a hybrid model. Um, we've already in the last budget seen the government introduce the concept of government-backed insurance for flood. In other words, they won't let Canadians be completely at, you know, at sea, as it were. They will create some kind of system. The insurance industry does see this, as far as I can gather, as a kind of a thin wedge into this bigger problem. And I'll tell you one little factoid I've gathered in my in my reporting here is uh I didn't realize that most insurers will not insure for earthquakes uh, in, in the lower mainland of British Columbia. So in Vancouver, um, Victoria, uh, they, the, Victoria as well, uh, they feel that the risk of a big quake, a super damaging quake is too high. So a lot of insurers will not give you quake insurance. And I said to one uh, person in the industry, do people living in Vancouver know that? That the smartest people with the best predictive models, world-class predictive models, think the risk is too high. Um, and they said, not really, right? You can't live with, you can't kind of broadcast that. You can't live with it. That's the kind of thing we need to be paying attention to because um, now what do you do with that? Do we shut down Vancouver? I don't think so, but but people might want to make choices based on it. Um, you know, if you're planning to move to California, you might want to know you're going to a place you can't insure your house, depending on where you buy that house. What will that do to real estate? Crater it. So this is the kind of consequence that is, if that's at our doorstep. Right. The price home values in those parts of California will be hurt by this decision in Florida. Eventually, that's the one of the places where this uh, citizen backed. It's called citizens insurance. I think it's government backed insurance is now one of the le- it's the fastest growing market, growing 200 percent a year in terms of um, the number of, of policies. It's never supposed to be that popular. Right. It's supposed to be the insurer of last resort. It's now becoming the first place people have to go. Just say in parentheses that my family and I spent a week, a couple of weeks ago in the other banks in North Carolina, where, you know, most models tell us won't exist in 100 years. Um, uh, and yet it's built up with, you know, massive public infrastructure and housing and, you know, all of the various amenities. Um, but it's a beautiful spot. I'd, I'd recommend visiting, uh, at least for now. Um, but as you say, one of the consequences is it puts uh, kind of downward pressure on on housing prices there. You can get a uh, beachfront property for far cheaper than you could most other places up and down the coast. Um, and that's because the market's essentially pricing in that these places aren't going to be there forever. And, you, you know, it, it may be a window into a, a broader dynamic all across not just North America, but but the world. I think that's right. And I mean, I will, if you go back to Florida, there are places where the disconnect um, is large. In other words, the real estate prices in Florida do not reflect the risk uh, to that real estate and the uninsurability of that real estate yet. Uh, I believe that when that happens, it will be very severe. It'll be a bit of a cliff. Um, uh, you know, and what will trigger it? Well, you know, as policies roll over and big insurers exit the market, um, and then a, even a minor event causes damage, um, being self-insured is only good for the very wealthy. So I do. I, I actually wondered whether when I sat when I was mulling over the California thing, I wondered what the lawsuits will be because second to insurance, of course, um, this kind of uh, sort of liability related lawsuit is the other mechanism that keeps our economies humming smoothly, and and you know winnows out all of the chaff. Uh, and so I just wondered, you know, who can you sue the state of California for mismanagement? Do you sue the, um, the utility companies for causing fires? I mean, what is the, where is the lever here that somebody will have to pull? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm waiting for it. 
Well, I'm grateful that you put this important story to our listeners and viewers, a, a ton of food for thought, maybe not Maybe not a lot of answers, but as you say, a lot of really important questions that are only going to be bigger in the coming years. Just another reason why I enjoy these conversations so much, and I I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thanks, John. Great to talk. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a review and rating. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's podcast producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. <laughs>